0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Thank you to everyone for joining us for this special event. I am Greg Scott, Director of Media at the Heritage Foundation. And i'm honored to welcome you to the plot to change america the issue of identity politics and how it is dividing our nation is urgent that is why the new book the plot to change america how identity politics is dividing the land of the free is so important and it's why we're hosting this conversation during this hour we'll have a lively discussion that includes two of the most articulate and dynamic observers and analysts of american culture today author of the plot to change america mike gonzalez and host of two of the most popular podcasts in America, Michael Knowles. Following the conversation between Mike and Michael, we will do a Q&A session, which I will moderate. So at any point during the program, if you think of something you'd like to ask either or both of them, please submit that question in the questions box. Be sure to tell us your name and where you're tuning in from. We'll answer as many questions as we can in the time that we have. But before we get to the discussion between Mike Gonzalez and Michael Knowles, I want to introduce a special guest to kick off the program. That special guest is Heritage Foundation President Mrs. Kay Coles James. Mrs. James, the floor is yours.
2: Well, good morning. I am so excited to welcome you to the Heritage Foundation and to our virtual book launch of The Plot to Change America. I want to thank you all, but especially I want to thank Michael Knowles for joining us today. We are so honored to have you with us. We are so proud of Mike Gonzalez and the time and the research that he's put into this tremendous book. Mike isn't afraid to point out what's happening to our beloved country, and he's not afraid to call out those who buy into the destructiveness of identity politics. Mike is often at the tip of the spear at Heritage when it comes to these issues. And he does it, well, he does it because he's a true patriot and because he doesn't want to see our beloved country go any further down this treacherous road. Ladies and gentlemen, it was only in the 1960s when we were struggling to desegregate this country. And courageous whites and blacks were working to bring races together and to ensure that America lived up to its promise of liberty and justice and equal treatment for all people. Today, most Americans live in racial harmony. We've had our first black president, we've had women and people of all colors and backgrounds in the highest ranks of American business and government. And yet, and yet, our young people are coming out of our colleges and universities believing that grievance politics, identity politics, is the road to justice and equality, when instead it will bring us right to a place where this nation is looking at a time in our history when we have never been more disrupted. This book couldn't be any more timely With the riots and the destructions of statues and monuments and the rewriting of American history in the classroom, the American people need to wake up to the insidiousness of identity politics. They need to understand what it has already cost our society. And they need to understand how it will poison our children and our grandchildren if we just stand by and allow it to continue. We can't let that happen and we won't let that happen. And so Mike, thank you for writing this important book. And thank you, Mike, for being here. Michael Knowles for being here today to talk with us about that. We are all looking forward to the conversation.
3: Thank you very much, Mrs. James. It is an honor to be here at the Heritage Foundation, albeit virtually and not uh, not in the building these days. And it's such a pleasure to be joined by Mike Gonzalez and to talk about this book, The Plot to Change America. Mike, I don't want to accuse you of anything, but when I look around today and I see roving bands of anarchists tearing down statues of the founding fathers of this country, all using the rhetoric of identity politics, some of whom are self-proclaimed Marxists, I cannot help but wonder if you hired this group of people as a marketing tool to promote the the thesis in this book because it seems as though we're seeing that thesis played out horrifyingly in real time all around us. Michael,
0: um, thank you very much for that uh, introduction uh, and thank you very much for being here. Yes, I'm very happy that my book is uh, selling well and that my ideas are getting out, but I'm not very happy at all as to the reasons why. <laughs> I did not hire these people. But everything <laughs> we've seen today, everything, you, you you just put your finger on it. Everything we've seen today from from the anarchy in Portland to the sixty the New York Times 6019 Project to the BLM organization to to Robin DeAngelo's so-called anti-racism training sessions. All of this is at the at the heart of why, uh, why I wrote my book. Little did I know as I was writing a year ago to today that we were going to have the summer of 2020, what I'm beginning to call the summer of hate. It is really a, a a consequence of the things we have done to ourselves. Well, it's funny because you,
3: you trace the origin of this identity politics back to the 60s when you might see the, the summer of love. And I think a lot of people were skeptical of that designation at the time. But now I, th- I think your description is apt. We're seeing the fruit of those ideologies. And it's led to the summer of hate. There's, there's one moment early on in the book. That was a little surprising to me, but I I think you're absolutely right, which is that when people think of identity politics and all of the affiliated pathologies, political correctness, intersectionality, use whatever term you like, when we think of it, a lot of people consider that to be just a sort of eccentricity a a side issue in american politics so you know we really need to get down to talking about the budget or foreign policy and oh that identity politics that's over on the side but what you say is much more specific and and probably more damning you say that identity politics has become our national hardware what do you mean by that
0: it's 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 really the software of of our culture it's everywhere around us we have become divided uh, in, among in, into groups based on uh, race, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, uh, gender, even disability status, and anything that confers a degree of uh, victimhood, which can then be used to claim respect or attention or, or rewards or uh, compensatory justice, uh, it is from the moment you enter school when your, your, your daughter's principal is saying diversity is our strength. Uh, to And to high school, when our kids are made to read Howard Zinn, uh, which does a, a wonderful job, not of telling history, because it is very bad history, but of instilling grievances. The installation of grievances is really at the heart of this. It needs to work that way. Uh, and then, obviously, the university campuses have been taken over by this, but, uh, but it, it's migrated over to the, to the, the workforce, uh, you know, HR is telling people to put a sign on their desks that say I'm an ally. Uh, you know, an ally? Right? Are, we, are we in a time of war? Um, so it really has, uh, has st- we're all bathing in it, is what I say. It is really, I, co- I have come to believe it is a juggler issue of our times. But not
3: every group gets to claim identity politics, grievance status, because even though, as you can see on the camera, I have relatively swarthy skin from my Sicilian heritage, uh, it seems that I would not qualify. Uh, Many other uh, people in this country do not qualify. So what is it? How does one get to claim this uh, privilege of being considered oppressed?
0: Yes, this is a uh, we decided. In the, in the 60s to, to siphon off a group of people and call them minorities. We hadn't done this before. We had never done this before. We could have done this in the 1920s when we had a, a, a huge number of Armenians or Syrians or Lebanese or Sicilians, in your case, or, or, or uh, Jewish people from Eastern Europe come in, people who were phenotypical uh, could be identified by phenotype. Um, we could have siphoned them off as minorities. We chose not to. We chose to say no. Let's uh, let's have all of these immigrants who are coming in join the, the melting pot and become Americans through assimilation. In the 1940s, you have social scientists who believe to associate this the victimhood, sense of victimhood of collective discrimination, with the term minority. And then the term minority, as we know it today, uh, comes into into the it first defined in Webster's 1961, in the definition that we know of it today, with that has an association with victimhood. Uh, this, so we divide them, we divide all these people into minority groups. And they have this sense of grievances of, 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 uh, of victimhood. And it is that which they then use to say, well, the country is uh, systemically racist. The country is institutionally and structurally racist. So we must change all the uh, institutions and all the structures in the the system itself.
3: You mentioned the social scientists. You mentioned the institutions. I think in the the popular imagination, identity politics is something that was developed from the grassroots. You know, people spontaneously taking to the streets and coming toward a, a kind of consciousness as a group of people and demanding their rights in the face of oppression. That's the official left-wing narrative, at least, by the people pushing identity politics. You say the origins are a little bit different. You say the origins were much more specific. It involved a small group of people, and it was highly intentional. So, so which
0: is it, and who's behind it? Yeah, it is not at all a grassroots effort. Uh, in fact, it was driven by, by elite uh, activists and, and, who, and ideologues, different groups of people, who then formed the bureaucracy to create these groups, who then instilled, who then, you know, uh, promoted this at our universities. In the 1960s, the Ford Foundation gave a great deal of money, actually, $600,000 or so to UCLA uh, researchers to go into Southwest and canvas Mexican-Americans. They came back with horrible news for the activists. Uh, Mexican-Americans um, did not feel they were minorities, did not feel they were uh, a victim group. They did know that they were being, they faced discrimination, which they, they, did, they did, but they thought that they could solve their own problems at an individual level. They could, they could use their own individual agency to overcome their problems. This was very bad news uh, for the UCLA researchers and for the Ford Foundation, which then undertook a, a, a process to instill, to, to create identities. The Ford Foundation was already giving money, even already in the late 60s to instill identities into groups. The Ford Foundation then creates La Raza in Maldiv, the Mexican American Legal and Defense Fund, and the Ford Foundation uh, begins to really support all of this group creation. Uh, behind all this is it, with the, the thinking of uh, postmodernists and the Frankfurt School that wanted to, to replace the narrative in, in terms of the postmodernists or the hegemonic narrative to use the word of Antonio Gramsci, an Italian communist leader in the 20s, uh, and replace what to you and me is the American dream, uh, the American story, which has obviously, we're not a perfect country by any means, but which can be perfectible, can be improved by using our ideals. It is these, uh, it, it is these theories that you see themselves play over again and again and again uh, among the people who create the groups, who create the ethnic groups, the pan-ethnic groups, and who create, who create the identities.
3: You mentioned Antonio Gramsci, who was, you know, founder of the Italian Communist Party, uh, what, probably the most significant Marxist philosopher ever, perhaps, perhaps even including Karl Marx himself. So we have a, a Marxist at the very beginning, formulating some of these ideas, which, as you mentioned, filter up through the Frankfurt School and and out into uh, critical theory and out into the modern university. You today have people uh, claiming the mantle of identity politics who are openly describing themselves as trained Marxists, specifically the leaders of the BLM organization. I see this common thread here. The common thread seems to be Karl Marx. So the, the common thread seems to be people who are avowedly communist. And yet when you raise that specter in the United States, people say oh, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. Oh, you're seeing communists everywhere. That's a red scare. Uh, so is this a conspiracy theory or, or is it a conspiracy?
0: Look oh up. Antonio Gramsci, whom you mentioned, is the one who first comes up with the idea the the fascists send him to prison to stop his uh, brain working. Very bad idea, as we know from the example of the Apostle St. Paul and many other examples. People do a lot of good thinking in prison and a lot of good writing. So he begins to think in the late 20s and 30s, why haven't revolutions happened like Marx and Engels promised us? You know, only they have succeeded in only only one place, uh, a, a backwater of Europe, Uh, uh, Russia in 1719 but they failed all the revolutions have failed since 1848 Uh, he said there is no German Soviet there is no Italian Soviet the German Revolution failed the Vienna Vienna failed in Italy and he begins to say well the reason is that the worker has become his own oppressor the worker has accepted all the cultural givens of of the so-called oppressive uh, uh, oppressor class he has accepted the family religion the economic system uh, and 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 you know all the institutions. So Antonio Gramsci, he called this is his theory of cultural hegemony. We need to destroy this hegemonic narrative and replace it with a counter narrative. Uh, this is what we're seeing today. As you said, we're seeing the creator of the 1619 Project says this is about replacing the, the narrative of America. Uh, a further uh, uh, refinement comes with the Frankfurt School which uh, second pre- president, Max Horkheimer writes a book in 1937, uh, which, which pronounces, first comes up with the idea of critical theory. Critical theory is an unremitting attack on, on all the norms of the West. Uh, Martin Jay, who wrote a very good book on the Frankfurt School, notes that they, they, they almost ignored, completely ignored the Soviet Union. Uh, there were no attacks on, on Stalin, even at the height of the famines, even at the height of the, the show trials, and all the massacres—it's uh, really non-remitting attack on the on the west Western norms and then American norms. And what do you have today on campus? You have critical theory is something that it has has you know infiltrated every faculty. If you if you're in law school, you have to study critical legal theory. If you're in other places, you have to study critical race theory. Uh, all the ethnic study uh, departments, which were started in the '60s by the active, in the 70s actually, by these activists are about replacing the narrative. Uh, Angela Davis, the former uh, Black Panther member of the Communist Party USA, who was taught directly by Herbert uh, Marcuse at Brandeis in the 60s. Herbert Marcuse is another one of these uh, gurus of the new left. She says that ethnic studies are the intellectual arm of the revolution. She knows what she's saying, and she's saying openly. So I think that we should take it seriously when we see today what is happening, having echoing, repeating the same phrases that these neo-Marxists, these cultural Marxists used in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s.
3: You can trace, as as you just did, as you outlined and you go into greater detail in the book, you can trace this evolution, this intellectual evolution that then overflows into this crazy politics that we're seeing around us. One particularly interesting point I noted in in the book is you did not dedicate a chapter to black identity because of the unique uh, role of black people in the history of the United States. Obviously, legal slavery, then Jim Crow, and then everything that accompanied those institutions what you point out is that identity politics attempts to conflate the experience of other minority groups as they continue to be created day by day with the black experience in america so so just as a matter of chronology even how do these minority groups uh, develop. Perhaps we could begin with Hispanic or Latino, or I think the new term that the, the identity politics people want us to use is Latin x. There's an x at the end. I don't know how to pronounce that, so I won't even try. Uh, but I, I notice Mike, that your last name is Gonzalez. So what is the Hispanic identity, and assuming people don't d- did not buy into it
0: when it came out, why has it stuck? Yeah, I mean, it, it is this analogizing of the unique. Black experience—that is, I think, especially specious—and um, they did it. They, they, I mean, they did it on purpose. The, the National Organization for Women and other feminists—they were talking in terms of Jane Crow at the time to make a clear association with Jim Crow. <clears throat> you know, Thurgood Marshall said, I think, in the in the in the Bakke decision, I think it was in the Bakke decision that he said, "No, look, our experience is unique." And the, 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 so, I say in my book, *The Plot to Change America*. Right off the bat, I am not going to have a chapter on African-Americans because they are a unique experience. I don't think that it is healthy uh, to to fill the hearts and minds of Af- African-Americans with resentment and hatred, but I do think that the slavery happened, Jim Crow happened, segregation happened. In fact, I fight so hard because I don't want to go back to the era of Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal, and we're slowly crawl, not even slowly, very rapidly going back to Plessy versus Ferguson with identity politics. The Hispanic uh, model is a, a very clear one with, uh, they first tried to organize in the 40s, in the late 40s with the, the election of Ed Roybal to the Los Angeles City Council, uh, organized Mexican-Americans who whom Sololinsky and Fred Ross, who who worked for Sololinski, did not think were organized enough into a voting bloc. And then, uh, the Chicano movement comes in and, and has this, you know, believes that Mexicans should be considered a race. Obviously, Mexico Mexicans is a nationality. Uh, there are many Mexicans who, who are, are of European origin. There are Mexicans who are indigenous origin. There are mixes thereof. There are even Mexican Afri- African Mexicans. So then they they do they do have this association of Mexicans and race. Then they begin to realize, well, we want to expand this coast to coast. We need to bring in Cubans, uh, Cuban emigrates in Florida, Puerto Ricans in the Northeast. And that's when they start to come up with the idea of Hispanic, which uh, the activists really begin to, to, to almost intimidate. But, uh, but, you know, work the bureaucracy into creating uh, the bureaucracy finally throws in the towel in 1977 uh, the Office of Management and Budget comes out with uh, policy directive number 15, which has the, the Hispanic identity. And, and it's then three years later that it gets introduced into the census of 1980, the first census that has this Hispanic identity uh, and has also Asian Americans, which is another huge pan ethnic umbrella group that brings together Americans of many different origins, people from India or Pakistan or China, Korea, the Philippines. They're all so Americans with very different groups with very very different cultural indicators brought in under this under this umbrella of Asian Americans. It's the same thing as as as, as Hispanic Americans. Now the thing is that many people listening to this will be surprised to hear that uh, Hispanics were concocted by the bureaucracy, and they will think that this has been around forever. In fact, there's a a writer, a, a professor at the University of California system, Christina Mora, who's who. who wrote about this, say, no, there will be collective amnesia. People will forget that this is new and will begin to accept this identity as having existed always. This is what they also wanted to do with MENA, Middle East, North Africa, create yet another identity group for a group of Americans, this time Arab-Americans and Persian-Americans.
3: Well, the the development of MENA, which I'm pleased to say I think we have collective amnesia about MENA because that was a new identity group that... The left tried to foist on us during the Obama administration, and it it just never took off. So I guess win win one for the good guys that there's not one more you know grievance group that's been concocted. Because as as you point out in the book, for the vast majority of our history, Arabs were considered white. Uh, you name a number of very well known Arabs, including, uh, for instance, Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, or Uh, You know, other people of Middle Eastern origin. Steve Jobs, no one would say, is particularly uh, oppressed on the basis of his race. Uh, That raises this question of white privilege, which we hear about today. Best-selling books are written on the subject. You can't take a job or go to a school without attending a training session where you are castigated for your white privilege. But it raises a question. If one receives a special privilege by virtue of being white, then why are activists clamoring to uh, remove their designation as white and create a new identity politics group? There seems to be a problem there.
0: Yeah, right. That is the, uh, it, it gives the lie to this idea of, 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 of white privilege. Uh, you can be, as J.D. Vance wrote a very good book, Hillbilly Elegy, about uh, four or five years ago, in which he described how his upbringing. He was a, of Appalachian origin, Scots-Irish, And when he got to Yale, he did not know, you know, he was unaware of what was expected of him culturally, what utensils to use or anything like that. Um, This is, I think that this, I quote the activists who met at the Census Bureau, including Linda Sarsour, a a radical uh, Palestinian activist, the very idea that the Census Bureau brought people like Linda Sarsour uh, to its offices in 2015 to advise on the creation of MENA. It tells you everything you want to know about this, about ag- agency capture by the left. Um, they they were very clear about in, when they were discussing what to do. First, they wanted to model it on Hispanics. Then they discussed the fact that, look, Arab Americans do not want this. I'm not, going to, I'm, not, I'm not asking for the MENA category. But then a professor... Uh, of ethnic studies said, uh, yeah, but once they understand that uh, there will be benefits associated with the category, benefits in terms of racial preferences in university admissions or hiring practices or government contracts, they they will embrace it. And it showed right away how this is really one of the, one of the things that about is about this is using these racial preferences as a gateway drug to identity politics. Um, but it showed also that you could derive benefit from proving that you're not white.
3: Right, you you might call it oppression privilege, right? It's it's become totally inverted. You you quote Linda Sarsour in the book as uh, pointing out that she began to wear the hijab, which she now wears in all of her public appearances, because without the hijab, she was just another white woman and that was not advantageous politically? And and the woman question comes up now here as well, because in addition to these racial categories, there there are sexual categories for identity politics. And what's always struck me as very strange is that women make up the majority of the population. Women make up uh, in America today, the majority of college students, you know. How is it that the majority could become
0: an aggrieved minority? Right. As I said, uh, in the 60s, uh, with this, the second wave feminism, they identified women, they, they, they analogized the situation of black Americans, which again is unique uh, to yeah. that of women. And I use a Jane Crow analogy. Uh, I see actually, Michael, a a, a new a, a, a new iteration of this. We're going through mm-hmm. all these iterations. And that is that um, white women are now seen as being moved to the oppressor class. You have this new term Karen that comes in and people are mocking uh, women as Karens, which is really uh, a bizarre uh, thing to phenomenon to, 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 have to be happening. Um, and I, I believe that Robin, I haven't read her book, Robin DeAngelo's book, White Fragility, includes a chapter called White Women's Tears, uh, which, uh, so, so I think that the, the, yes, there was a women are, Classified now, you can get certain set-asides and hiring uh, quotas and all that for being a woman. But I believe that women, this could be happening, maybe being moved back into the category of, of the oppressor class, white women, that is.
3: I am with you. I have not yet mustered sufficient masochism to read the White Fragility book, but it, is, it has become very popular, as has this term, Karen. And, you know, the, the term Karen, though it is in common use, is a racial slur. It, it refers explicitly to white women. The difference is it's a socially acceptable racial slur. So you, you see this evolution, this, this change in what sort of uh, racial categories are protected, what sort of sexual categories are protected. There is a uh, now a disagreement, you might say, between the new feminists and the old feminists, you know, the old feminists of the second wave. Uh, very much believed in biological sex. You know, I am woman, hear me roar. And now uh, the category of sex has been completely obliterated. There was a major news agency that referred the other day to individuals with a cervix. They didn't use the term woman. They said, uh, so now you might say, I am woman, hear me roar, has been replaced with, I am individual with a cervix, hear me roar. This would also seem to create a contradiction, a problem within that particular identity category, uh, is there, I'm searching for any sort of hope here that we could recover from this identity politics nightmare, is there a chance that because of these sort of contradictions, identity politics will collapse in on itself or uh, will it require a greater, a greater effort to uh, rid ourselves of that problem?
0: Okay, I'll tell you, I I am hopeful, I'll tell you the reason why I'm hopeful, I think the reason I wrote my book, The Plot to Change America, is to shed light on what has happened. I think Americans first need to be aware of what happened, who did it, how they did it, why they did it, before we can start thinking of ways of reversing what what has happened. Um, I think at the end of the day, uh, these are all really at, at heart, whether they're culturally Marxist or economic Marxist, these are Marxist ideas. The conflict is a a purely Marxist uh, concept of of, of all of life being nothing but conflict between groups and and, and, and power dynamics. But at the end of the day, Marxists set out to do the impossible. It is is a supremely vain attempt at changing human nature. Che Guevara said he he wanted to create the new man. Uh, But human nature is unchangeable, right? If you read the Odyssey, the Iliad, if you read the Bible, you come across people like Ulysses and Achilles and Agamemnon and Moses and Abraham and Sarah, and and you recognize them right away. They're they're just like us, the humans. They lived thousands of years ago, but they have the same vices and virtues that we have. Human nature is unchangeable, so when they fail to change human nature... Marxists then have to fall back on coercion, if not violence. They, they, And that always happens. That is a feature, not a bug, of Marxism. Every Marxist system that has ever existed has had to rely on coercion. And I think the American people are too attached to freedom, too attached to their liberties, to really put up with coercion that much longer. So I think this is why you see the pushback against cancel culture against, uh, you know, hate speech, against PC, because it is really, these are coercive uh, techniques that is being used to silence uh, any dissent. Um, So I think my purpose, I believe, with my book is to to explain as plainly as I can how this was done, uh, how these groups came about and why they came about, and start, change how we talk about this. Change the conversation and cha- in, in, in get us to think about it differently in a more informed way. And I think that would be the beginning of, of the process of solution. I, I really do be, believe that, uh, I'm not being Pollyannish, I, I am optimistic that this can be resolved.
3: You've hit on a central consolation here. Uh, this is probably the sole consolation that conservatives have in the popular culture and in politics, which is that reality reasserts itself. In the end, it might take a long time. It might 70 years of the Soviet Union. Might take a long time under any other terrible regime on Earth. But because you cannot change human nature, ultimately that reality will reassert itself. And you know, as you as you note artfully in the book, uh, it does appear that people are coming to realize that these identity categories that have been foisted on them by elites, by specific individual people, individuals that you name in the book. Uh, they don't describe them. They don't describe the reality that they see. Uh, You know, just on this one particular issue of the gender ideology, the transgender ideology now, I think a lot of people know that a man is not a woman, you know, that men and women are different. And no matter how many times a, a, a professor at a very liberal college insists otherwise, they know that that is not the case for the various identity groups, in particular Hispanics, no matter how many times they are told you must go by Hispanic. You must go by Latino. You must now go by Latinx. They'll say, no, I don't, I don't think that describes me very much as well. I, I, I'd like to close, you know, but before we move on to the Q&A, I would like to get back to this point you made at the very beginning, and it's a point you make in the first chapters of your book, which is, all we hear now as a constant mantra at every university, at every grade school for that matter, diversity is our strength. And it would seem that what people mean by that is chopping ourselves up into smaller and smaller identity groups. That is going to make America stronger. Uh, divvying up more and more and more grievance is going to make America stronger. We can look around at the statues toppling and discover that probably is not the case. We have an older idea in America, which is a pluribus unum out of many one that we, we come together. And that unity in the United States is our strength. Have people woken up to that specific issue yet? You know, the the argument that, for instance, President Trump has made, that we're all patriots, we're all together, there is a common good here in America. Is that argument catching on? Or even if we can remain hopeful, do we have a ways to go of division and identity politics before
0: reality reasserts itself? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Let me, it's not just that people are being herded into groups, uh, but you have to, represent your group. Uh, you know, Congresswoman Presley put it very well when she said late last year, if you come to the table as a member of a group, you have to speak for that group. If you are not going to to, to, to come in and represent that group and represent what is assigned to you, don't come to the table. In other words, essentialism. We um, we I have to think and speak and the ideas that are assigned to me by the Hispanic category. What you just said to me, it's a, it's a great way to close. What makes this country possible, what makes this country, you of Sicilian ancestry and me of Cuban Spanish ancestry, to come together and be Americans is that we, there is an American creed and there's an American culture that we can adhere to, that we can, uh, that, that we can have loyalty to. We can you can continue to eat pasta if you want if you if pasta's your thing. I can continue to smoke cigars, which I do. But we have to, but we we do. This is something that America is exceptional and unique. No other country does this. I've lived in seven other countries at least a year, in other countries many months. This country is exceptional in that it does take people in from all over the world and says you're an American. Here's what we do. Um, at the end of the day, we have solved all our problems. We have we solved slavery. We solved segregation. We solved Jim Crow by going back to the ideals of the, of the revolution. All men are created equal. The foundational ideal, all men are created equal. When Lincoln fought against slavery and he said, Jefferson did not need to put in those words to defeat the Brits. You know, he put in there for somebody like me to come along. When Martin Luther King goes to the mall, And says, we are here to cash a promissory note. That promissory note is the promise of all men are created equal. And that is what we have to go back to aspiring to live by those ideals. It's when we have aspired to that, that we have solved our problems. And it is, I think, by aspiring to this ideal that we will solve identity politics.
3: I think you're right and building off of the equality principle perhaps we should acknowledge the equality of our viewers and take some questions I know there are lots of questions out there from the audience so uh, perhaps we can get into them now
0: Yeah you're
1: right uh, uh Michael there are a bunch of questions uh on we probably won't have time to get to them all but we'll do as uh, many as uh, we'll definitely do as many as possible uh the first one that I will uh that I will uh, read is from uh, Jim Scott in Centennial, Colorado. He asks, with the media, woke corporations, professional sports leagues, universities, and every other powerful institution on board with identity
0: politics, how does the average person fight against this? Well, I don't want anyone to lose uh, their jobs, but I think that we need to draw inspiration from the people who live behind the Iron Curtain and, and, and in the Soviet Union who did speak the truth and face the consequences. I think that uh, they are brave uh, basketball players who are remaining standing when they play the national anthem. I think that we should hold them up as heroes. They are the ones who have courage. We need the media will say, look how courageous the the, the basketball players left the court when they played the national anthem. No, that is not courageous. To stand up, to be that one man, that picture of, uh, of, of, uh, of people saluting Hitler uh, and there's there's one man with his arms folded. That is the courageous one. So I think that when uh, when your company comes along and tells you there's going to be another uh, struggle session or or you have to put something on your desk, if you you use use prudence but gently push back and say, well, what is happening? You know why? I when, I think that we have to summon up some courage. And again, please don't lose your jobs. But they, we need to create some space for liberty, Michael. I don't know if you have any ideas.
3: Well, I I agree with everything you've said, and I'm reminded of this irony, which is that the left always tells us that there is institutional racism, there is institutional oppression, but then it occurs to me, the left controls every major institution in the United States. They control the mainstream media, they control Hollywood, they control big tech. They control administrative government. They control higher education. They control lower education. The list goes on and on. So if there is institutional racism or oppression, whose fault would that be? It would probably be the people who run the institutions. You bring up the point about the brave basketball player who, who stood up for the national anthem when everybody else was taking a knee. Uh, that guy's name, who we just saw the other night, was Jonathan Isaac. I'm not a big NBA fan. But I think a lot of people had never heard his name before. And I think there is a consolation here and a a worthy lesson, which is even though this is a relatively unknown player, he's now selling more jerseys than anybody else in his league other than LeBron James. There is what some people have called a silent majority out there, not who are conservative necessarily or Republican who are necessary. The silent majority of people who feel bullied, who feel censored, who feel intimidated by this a highly ideologized institutional environment, and they want to push back against that. They want to reward people who fight against that. Uh, very often, if I'm speaking on a college campus, kids will ask me, should I speak up in class or should I keep my mouth shut and get a good grade? And later on, I'll tell people my views. And it seems to me that integrity is a habit. You know, Honesty is a habit. As you say, Mike, we don't want anyone to lose their jobs or get kicked out of school. We want people to be Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But, you know, these habits have to be practiced and it's not going to be easier tomorrow to practice. It's not going to be easier to tell the truth and and have integrity uh, when you're out of college and you suddenly have a job and a family to support. It's not going to be easier Ten years from now or 20 years from now, either, you know, courage is a virtue too. courage is a prerequisite for all of the other virtues. One wants to be prudent. But if you show a little bit of courage, I think there are a lot of people out there, more than most people think, who who will reward uh, speaking the truth in an oppressive
1: environment. Michael, this is uh, probably a good one for you, since you mentioned uh, you're you're out talking to college students, you interact with your audiences every every day, so you're uh, talking to average people who are uh, trying to navigate this. So the question is, uh, for people who don't study uh, Gramsci, Marcusa, and Marx, how does the average person talk about what is going on in layman's terms and explain to their neighbor why it's so dangerous?
3: The layman's terms, I think, are actually the key here because uh, so much of of what is in Mike's book, I mean, so much of the plot to change America has been based on the highly technical jargon of a bunch of egghead leftist academics going back 100 years to the point now that if, if one is to engage in a conversation in a critical race theory class, we have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, I think if we speak in plain terms, uh, that's going to be a much easier way to communicate to people. And the nice thing is, because you have this highly ideologized kind of leftist culture, uh, the alternative to that is common sense, using common language, speaking plainly, right? The idea of political correctness itself is to create these very complicated polysyllabic euphemisms that that say... uh, basic, obvious things. So I, I would engage on that level. I don't think that you need to go through the prison notebooks of Gramsci or read Das Kapital. I, I myself can never get through that drivel. Can't, can't get all the way through. I think it's it's uh, true of, of a lot of people. But uh, there are many people in this country who can see that something is off, something isn't right. When the statues are toppling, that's simple enough. And, and one thing I would encourage people to do as well is recognized that going back to all of these older thinkers, what the the left's trick has been to pretend that all of their political philosophy is a science. So it'll be the science of history that they've discovered or the social sciences. And they use the term science here so that it's impossible to disagree with them. Whereas in, a, in an authentic politics and political philosophy, there is debate between eternal questions that we've debated since the dawn of civilization. And that is legitimate. These topics are open for debate. You don't need to have 15 letters at the end of your your last name and credentials from all the top schools in order to engage with them. We the
0: people still have a voice, at least for now. One thing I want to add to that, that's very good, Michael. My, uh, my son, one of my sons who's going to college, he said when you talk about critical theory, make sure you, you make the case that you're not talking about critical thinking, you're talking about the opposite. Critical theory it's the opposite of critical thinking because they tell you what to do. It's making critical theories about making a puppet out of you. And the other thing I wanted to add is, if anybody wants to really keep up with this, there's a very good resource: the Michael Knowles show. Uh, you can find it's a great podcast. It's a great. Michael really does explain these things very well. So I want to give you thanks for that. Go ahead, Greg. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it yeah we've got a question from Daniel
1: Thompson and uh, Mike, since you didn't include a section on uh, African Americans because of their unique uh, because of their unique history um why is it do, do you think that black leaders are not fought back against all of the uh, uh, all of these invented groups hijacking their movement?
0: you know uh, that is a very good question that I have asked myself all along um, there could be that. Yeah, some people have said that the Ford Foundation, when it was setting out to create these groups, had the, had the fear that uh, the, the civil rights movement needed to have a, a, a wider uh, constituency. It could not just be African-Americans who are 12 to 13 percent of the population. It could be that these leaders think that they, they, you know the constituency is enlarged when they're speaking on behalf of all colored people. Uh they, 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 the needs of leaders and the needs of average people, uh, you know, the average Americans, rank and file Americans are very different, sometimes uh, at odds. And I think this is a case when that happens, when you have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Reverend Sharpton or somebody else speak in, you know, in terms of on behalf of all people of color, all minorities, he's really enhancing his, but, but this is not doing any good uh to to african americans i don't believe michael do you have any thoughts on that
3: i have all of mike's thoughts i think that that's uh, absolutely <laughs> right i do and you know i i actually think this point uh that that mike makes in the book not to have a chapter on black identity is is sort of the key here you know because the the black identity in america is unique and you cannot as mike says uh, analogize other groups' experiences for, for one simple reason, which is that uh, a huge number of black people in America today can trace their ancestry back to slave ships. Their ancestors were brought here against their will. And so that is a categorically different experience from people whose ancestors chose to come here. And I think that, that choice, the, uh, the idea that your great-grandfather decided to come to this country in search of a better life of a free act of will, uh, it shows you how preposterous it is to now, uh, you know, generations later, uh, contrive this grievance at, at the country that your ancestors sought out and, and the country that gave one's ancestors a place to build a better life.
1: There are several questions regarding uh, what we do about the, um, uh, the insertion of identity politics in all levels of education. Mike, I know you've dealt with this uh, in Montgomery County, Harvard, and in uh, many different places. So uh, what advice would you give for uh, parents um, from K through PhD who
0: have uh, kids in school? Yeah, I mean, go to the meetings of the Board of Education and make a pest of yourself. Uh, ask the tough questions. My uh, my wife doesn't like to come with me to the meetings of the Board of Ed uh, where we live for exactly this reason. Uh, you have to ask, uh, why are you spending money on such things as cultural responsive teaching, which has, you know, this zero proof that it works, and yet you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be spent on books or computers and so forth. Um, the, among the policy recommendations I give in my book, Basically two, one is to get the government out of the the category creation business. The the bureaucrats are not anthropologists, they're not biologists, they should not be creating categories. And the second one, which is a corollary, is to get out of, uh, stop giving benefits for people to adhere to these categories. Um, Hmm. Once we stop this, and I I do believe that uh, affirmative action, which is really racial preferences, it is it's, it's unconstitutional, and I do believe it's running out of time. Senator Day O'Connor, and uh, I think it was in Bollinger in 2003, said, yeah, we're going to approve this, but only for 25 more years. That That is coming up soon in in, in, in in eight years. But I think even before that, the next time this comes, and because of Asian Americans, because of Chinese Americans and Indian Americans, uh, the next time it comes before the court, the court is just going to throw it out and say this is clearly a violation of, of uh, you know, of, of equality under the law. You know, uh, I,
3: of course, agree. Parents should be very involved in their children's schools and go to the school board meetings and look at the curricula. One thing I think that's important here as well is do not underestimate how damaging identity politics can be for young children when you find identity politics in the schools. There is nothing worse than you, that you can tell a young child then you cannot succeed because of your skin color or your sexual identity or, or uh, you know, w- whichever identity category you prefer. You know, in the 1990s, when we had the self-esteem movement, uh, probably went a little too extreme. We told kids that they could do whatever they wanted at any given time. They were always wonderful. They got participation trophies and A-pluses and on every assignment. Now it seems we've swung exactly in the opposite direction, and we tell I I suppose uh, half the population, you will not succeed, more than half the population when you include women. You will not succeed. You will not be able to do anything. Give up. Don't even try. That's the worst message. That is the opposite of what education should be doing. The entire point of education, particularly liberal education, is to teach us to to grow, to grow in wisdom, and to tame our passions, and to make of us responsible people who can strive and and who can achieve. And and so when those identity politics creep in, it may seem like a trivial issue. We can joke about some of the identity categories, but it can be profoundly damaging for your child's life.
0: That's right. Any parent who comes across any idea that uh, punctuality or hard work or the use of reason, the use of reason are a function of, of whiteism. They should just go back to the teacher and say, "Don't do not teach this poison to my child. This is racist stuff. This, this you know, that you we really have to on this one. Where you really have to stand up and say, "This is poison. It, what separates us from plankton is our use of reason. So, so do not say that it is a white thing. I can't think. I can't believe that we're saying this in 2020, and that it." So, so yeah, no, fight against that really hard.
1: Well, there was an argument on Twitter
0: yesterday about
1: whether two plus two actually equals four. So, uh, <laughs> people were serious about it too. Uh, Michael, I'll throw this one. Uh, I'll throw this one to you. It's from uh, David from Canada. Uh, he say uh, he asks, why do corporations and foundations fund this movement? What do they get out of it when so few people actually support it? A great
3: question from our neighbors to the north, which I lovingly refer to as America's hat. I think the Republican Party, you know, in in the practical partisan realm and the conservative movement has made a big mistake for several decades, which is in their zeal to go after the ever-expanding size and scope of government. They seem to give corporate America a pass, and, you know, they, they developed a sort of bad reputation as being promoters of corporate America. Corporate America is the problem. (laughs) Corporate America, probably more than any other group, maybe with the exception of education, is leading this leftward lurch in America and embracing identity politics and hurtling us off the cliff into nonsense and oblivion. Why are they doing that? Because corporations have one goal, which is to follow the almighty dollar. And it's much easier when you have uh, concerted, contrived activist groups uh, which are, you know, high, well-funded and highly organized, as Mike describes in in the plot to change America. When when you've got those highly motivated groups petitioning, threatening, boycotts, even just making a couple dozen phone calls, that will push corporate policy because they just don't want to deal with it. It's just easier. They'll save a little bit of money in the long run. Finally, why not capitulate? You know, and I, I think we need to hold those corporations to account. There has been a debate now, uh, at least, you know, since the rise of President Trump and over the last four years over uh, globalism. You know, we we now have corporations that don't even seem to have much loyalty to the United States. You know, they they seem to have more of a transnational loyalty or or even in the case of the NBA, which we mentioned earlier, they seem more loyal to China than they are to the United States. And and that's a big problem. I, I don't blame corporations for following the almighty dollar. But I, I think we have to do much more in this country to hold them to account, because even if somehow we manage to rein in the administrative government, even if by some miracle we were able to rein in the educational system, you would still have this, this major power for shaping public opinion, corporate America. And, and if we don't also get them on the right track, then, then we're not going to be able to escape this, this
1: absolute scourge of identity politics. I think we have time for one more question, and that question will come from uh, John Bergdahl, and it'll be from Mike Gonzalez. With all this talk about identity politics, we know that we have a shared American identity.
0: How do do we restore that? We need to go back to teaching civics. Civics, as as it used to be known, uh, who were the founders? What were their foibles? What were their strengths? What were their arguments? Their arguments, they often argued against each other. Um, you know what is the system of what is natural right what is natural law uh, we're the only what makes America exceptional also is the fact that we're the only country to derive our legitimacy from natural law and natural right it is really all over our founding documents what do these things mean uh, do we have rights that we can observe in nature that are pre-government and that only tyrants can take away how does a system of government work how to, what is the separation of powers uh, that which we, we derive from Montesquieu, <clears throat> and then how do you how do you become civically engaged? Uh, civics now is taught as as participation civics. How to demonstrate, how to, how to go go to the how to go on the street. Uh, you can get uh, extra points uh, in your civics class if you go march in Washington, take a bus. University of Vermont to go go demonstrate in front of the Supreme Court, Uh, we need to go back to to the old traditional understanding of how a civic American sees his or her government. Uh, But we also have to do the hard job of, of driving identity politics, this division of our country. Look, we're a country made up of many different peoples. We really need to go back to we're all Americans, we have, we, we, we do derive, you know, uh, pleasure from knowing our background. And we, we, we do, we enjoy grandma's cooking, we enjoy our, our family's history, but we're also this other thing, which is Americans, you know, which is a wonderful thing to be. And, and we're all very lucky that America extends us this right, uh, whether somebody like me, not born here, so this is really, I think, the, the, the way out. Uh, it's not going to be easy. I'm not promising it's going to be easy, but it's we either do it or we lose our freedoms, I believe. I believe that very strongly. Michael, final thoughts?
3: My final thought is that people should go read the book uh, because <laughs> the, not even just as, as a plug for Mike, but because you're absolutely right, we, we will lose our freedom as we have come to understand our freedom in America, and as we've cherished it uh, all these centuries. Uh, we, will, we will do that if we lose the sense of natural right, if we lose the sense of natural law, if we allow grievance to multiply. And, and one of, my, I think, the most important takeaways from the plot to change America is this didn't happen by accident. This wasn't just some spur-of-the-moment grassroots campaign. There were specific individuals that we can name going back now 100 years who plotted this and who effected this campaign to dismantle America. The fruit of that is all around us as statues of Thomas Jefferson and George Washington are falling all around the country. That was not an accident. That was intentional. And if we want to save our country, if we want to save our cherished institutions and our freedom, the, the, the nation itself, that isn't going to be by accident either. That is going to be a, an intentional act. We're going to have to muster the courage to do it. And you're, and you're not going to be able to do that unless you know exactly how it happened in the first place, which is why I strongly encourage people
1: to read The Plot to Change America.
0: And go also to The Michael Knowles Show. Yes, Michael, thank you.
1: <laughs> well, gentlemen, this is, uh, this has been – I can't think of a better way to have spent the last hour – Um, I want to thank you, Mike Gonzalez, you, Michael Knowles, and I want to thank Kay James for giving us uh, your time, your minds and your words today. Uh, We'll be sharing a recording of this uh, for everybody who has joined us today uh, later on. So uh, look out for that. Um, And I want to reiterate two things before we go. First, please purchase a copy of The Plot to Change America. If you already have purchased one, Uh, consider buying another one as a gift. You can go to heritage.org slash the plot to do that. Heritage.org slash the plot. Second, subscribe to both of Michael Knowles' podcasts. The Michael Knowles Show, simple enough, and The Verdict with Ted Cruz. I understand there's some really good episodes uh, coming out right now, which is the reason why Michael's in DC. So uh, with that, uh, everybody, thank you for joining us. Uh, Have a wonderful Tuesday. We're gonna sign off. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, Michael.